Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Sarah, have you ever noticed that your appearances on this show directly correspond to how bad and confusing the COVID situation is? <laughs> yes, I do notice that because I still haven't forgotten when you set the Jaws theme song to me coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to do it again. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Ooh, hey there. I am Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And that, that is not your usual scary Sarah Overmall music. No, no, no. That's some fun music with some pep in your step piano going there. I like that. And the reason is because Sarah is not just here to give us doom and gloom about the pandemic. She's actually got some good news about full vaccine approval, not just emergency use authorization, full approval on the horizon. So stick around for that. But first, we are talking about the Delta variant, which I know is kind of scary. So anyways, here's some more fun music before that. (laughs) Enjoy. So given that you're here, Sarah, um, that means we are going to be talking about some not so fun stuff with the virus. Um, let's, let's start with the Delta variant. It has been the source of a lot of frustration, confusion, fear over the past couple of weeks for people, especially after the CDC released its new mask guidance recently calling for vaccinated people in areas with high transmission to mask up indoors because of evidence suggesting that you can still spread the virus if you have one of those super rare breakthrough cases, even if you're fully vaccinated. There have been a lot of questions out there because of this new data, some misinformation, um, arguments, I think, between people uh, about the efficacy of of vaccines in light of all of this. Uh, Since you know this so well, Uh, Just tell me, what do we know at this point about the variant and the vaccines? Well, absolutely. Confusion has abounded um, and hasn't been helped by what some people have seen as, uh, you know, the administration going back and forth on recommendations about masks and things. So what we do know about the Delta variant is that it is more transmissible. It is potentially more severe, especially for younger people who would not have gotten serious cases from other variants. Mm -hmm. And we know that it accounts for the vast majority at this point of cases in America, more than 80 percent. And so when it comes to breakthrough infections, which has been, I think, a source of a lot of alarm in the past week and a lot of misinformation. We know that uh, the vaccines are not quite as effective against the Delta variant as they are against other variants, but are still very effective. And when someone does have a breakthrough infection, they are finding that the vast majority of the time, it's a very mild uh, infection. Senator Lindsey Graham, for instance, just recently tweeted that he had a breakthrough infection and that it felt like a sinus infection. And if he hadn't been vaccinated, that it might have been different. So that's what we know so far about that. What about um, hospitalizations and deaths? Because at the end of the day, that's kind of what like vaccines are, are most important for, right? Um, th- the vaccines are still good at, at preventing that with the Delta variant, right? 
So we know so far that these vaccines are very effective at preventing hospitalization and death, whether from the Delta variant or from others. The vast majority of hospitalizations and deaths that we are seeing right now are among unvaccinated people. Uh, so the Delta variant has spread very far, and in, especially in states with lower vaccination rates, primarily southern states. Uh, that is where we are seeing uh, most of the spread and some of the pressure on hospitals and public health resources. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at data here compiled by the Kaiser Family Foundation of states reporting breakthrough cases, and they're showing that breakthrough cases are well below 1% for vaccinated people. And then for hospitalizations and deaths, the rate among vaccinated people is almost 0%. But despite that, I mean, we've seen a whole lot of headlines about breakthroughs, reporting on hospitalizations and cases in vaccinated people over the past week or so. If you had to put those headlines into context next to the data for someone who might be freaking out at the moment, like with all the news we've heard about Delta and breakthrough cases and the new mass guidance, like if you had to put that into context for someone, how would you do that? And I'm not necessarily saying, like, calm people's fears here, but just give us, you know, some reason. No, it's it's a great question because absolutely every time that there is a headline about one person, uh, everyone sees that and thinks that this speaks to a much larger problem, I think, than than it actually is. And like, I, like you said, you know, we don't want to say that these aren't concerns, but what health officials have said is that we, are, we will see more breakthrough infections because we're seeing more vaccinations, and there will be a few. That doesn't mean that the vaccines aren't working. It's just that we have a large pool at this point, hundreds of millions of people across the world of people who are getting the vaccine and then getting exposed to other variants and things. So there's just a higher chance maybe of a breakthrough infection. The other thing I would say to kind of put the data in context is to compare this a little bit to the early concerns about the Pfizer vaccine and allergic reactions or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and blood clots, specifically in women of a certain age, that those were very rare instances and they were tracked, but ultimately those vaccines were deemed effect- safe and effective and that they were so rare that it was very unlikely that it was going to happen to the average person. I think another thing to consider here is that this isn't a breakthrough infection isn't a risk the way that um, a blood clot is. We know so far that it is very unusual that people who have breakthrough infections will still have a serious case. And so if we think about this in the context of this past year and how many deaths we've had and how many long-haul COVID uh, survivors we've had, to get a breakthrough infection that feels like a cold is still better than to not be vaccinated and and get the whole deal. <laughs> You mentioned Johnson & Johnson when you were talking about risks and all with vaccines. With a lot of the stuff I've read about vaccines remaining effective against the the Delta variant, I feel like I almost always see places referencing mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And it makes me wonder, like, what about the people who've gotten Johnson & Johnson? Because I've heard talk about the possibility of, of another shot or things like that. What do we know about Delta and J&J? Well, uh, first of all, they have a clinical trial ongoing that they started before the Delta variant reared its ugly head, um, looking at how effective it would be to administer a second dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And Mm. so data for that, for that so-called booster dose, uh, could come within a matter of days or weeks. They said that it would be around July. Uh, We do know that, you know, like the other vaccines, um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is slightly less effective against it, but because its efficacy overall was lower than the other vaccines, 
vaccines at, you know, roughly 66% for overall cases that we're dealing with maybe, um, a, a bigger question of how long immunity can hold against this and when people would need boosters. So uh, without that data of the second dose, I think it's hard to say just how much it could help to get another shot. I do know that uh, some localities are just forging on ahead. San Francisco has said that it will start to administer Moderna and Pfizer shots to people who got J&J vaccines. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, first one to do that. Hmm. But I think that broadly, the federal government is loath to do something like that because it would signal maybe some lack of confidence in the vaccine. And that's that goes for booster shots and, and for Johnson & Johnson specifically. Since you brought up the idea of boosters, is that something that's like being considered, um, you know, not just for boosting the efficacy of of J&J in this situation, but like more broadly for vaccines, including Pfizer and Moderna? Do you think we could see boosters needed down the line? 100 percent. I think that that is eminent. I've talked to health officials who've said that that is eminent uh, privately. But once again, it's this question of confidence and uh Anthony Fauci actually alluded to this in a Senate hearing last month where he said that he didn't want talk of boosters to make people who haven't gotten the vaccine yet feel as though it's not effective. And while you understand that argument, the clock is also ticking on making decisions about boosters because it is in some way inevitable. I don't think that anybody really thought that we would be one and done forever. Mm-hmm. We just maybe didn't think it would come so soon. Uh, the problem is that there's already going to be sort of this politically thorny issue about administering extra doses to Americans when there are millions of people abroad who haven't even gotten a first dose. Mm-hmm. The World Health Organization on Wednesday actually said that it wanted everyone to stop administering booster shots until more doses were given to other countries that are waiting for their first wave. Mm. All of these shots, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, all of these vaccines that are approved right now in the U.S. Authorized, yeah. (laughs) Authorized, yeah. Emergency authorization. Maybe I'll have to stop reminding you of that soon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's actually what I was going to ask about. The vaccines are currently being used under emergency use authorization, not full approval, which has been a source of hesitancy for some people. But you have new reporting looking at when we might see actual full approval for at least one of those shots, Pfizer. Um, when could that be? What would that mean? And and also, what's the difference between full authorization and emergency use? Totally. I'll, I'll get excited when I have to stop saying authorizing, authorizing, um, <laughs> because there, there is a difference. Um, yeah, and yeah. so that full approval for Pfizer, at least, which filed just a few weeks ahead of Moderna in May, um, that could come in a matter of weeks. We mm. could see that by early September. And so the difference between approval and authorization, um, emergency use authorization can only happen in the context of a public health emergency. And so if this emergency ends, and that's, you know, a government call to say that it has ended, then that authorization ends. Mm. And FDA also is making that decision on a lower bar than full approval. So they're basically making the decision on, does this have promise for being beneficial? And does that promise outweigh the risks? Whereas full approval is the FDA putting its stamp on and saying this is safe and effective. Um, They've been tracking all this data about how long immunity lasts, if there are side effects that didn't pop up at first, uh, you know, different populations that might have different responses, anything like that. Those questions are going to be answered in that paperwork they filed with the FDA. So to your question about whether this could help with confidence, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll, it might. They said that 
that um, 30% of unvaccinated people say that full approval would help them um, be encouraged to get the vaccine. But that was also couched in um, comments from the pollsters saying that two-thirds of those same respondents didn't totally understand the difference between authorization and approval. So this very well could... <laughs> Join the club. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's good company. Um, so, so you know, we have to take that, you know, with a grain. It could just be people, mm-hmm. uh, in the pollsters' words, looking for a proxy for safety, looking for some assurance. Um, so I don't know that we'll actually see sort of this tidal wave after approval, but that will help with certain... Um, logistical issues. So for instance, President Joe Biden said that all federal workers are required to get the vaccine or be subject to routine testing. Uh, The Department of Defense doesn't fall under that. They would have to do this themselves. And what they have said is they are not inclined to require active military to get this vaccine when it's not yet approved. They do require other vaccines. Um, Active military have to get an anthrax shot, which is not, you know, available to you and us. Mm -hmm. Um, But they can't, they don't want to um, require them to get something that isn't approved. So that's one way that this could actually help out a lot. Sarah Overmall is a health reporter for Politico who co-authors the Politico Pulse newsletter, which you can find at politico.com slash newsletters. Also today, new polling shows that approval of President Biden's handling of the pandemic has slipped to 53 percent, while his overall job approval fell more slightly. The new survey from Quinnipiac University found the share of Americans who approve of Biden's handling of COVID is down 12 points from May, and his job approval is down three points to 46 percent. The new numbers come just over six months into Biden's term as his administration faces a surge in the Delta variant, but also as the president has been touting his ability to get a bipartisan infrastructure bill passed in Congress, a feat his predecessor was unable to accomplish and one that, if successful, could back up the White House's messaging that Biden can get things done. And... Press Secretary Jen Psaki is accusing Senate Republicans of, quote, moving in lockstep to block the Biden administration's pick to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Asked at Wednesday's press briefing about the delay in David Chipman's confirmation, Psaki noted that the ATF has not had a confirmed director in six years. Republicans have publicly expressed opposition to Chipman leading the ATF, arguing that he favors too many gun restrictions and claiming he's too anti-gun to lead the agency. But Chipman has yet to secure the support of all 50 members of the Senate Democratic Caucus, which would allow him to be confirmed without any Republican support. Today's episode included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend to check out the show. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.